Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hit it. Why is that? The government. The government. The government. The government. 
Islam. Assalamu alaikum. Shalom. Hotel. I want to welcome everyone to another area of Conscious Vibes Radio. Of course, I am your host, Ramiel Ilbay. And tonight's subject is going to be the transatlantic slave trade. Truth or myth? We're going to dive into some factual information dealing with the possibility or the impossibility of the slave trade as we know it. Because we're taught it through history, but many have never questioned the validity of what's being presented, starting with the time from the time that we are in, you know, school and so on and so forth. These are the histories that we're learning. And because we're programmed not to ask questions, in most cases we just accept it. So before we jump into that subject, and, and I'm going to say throughout this whole show, uh, for this one in particular, I'm going to keep the lines open from the very beginning because I really want to encourage your questions and your feedback as we deal with the subject. So before we get into it, I want to make a couple of announcements. Um, as many of you all know, um, the broadcast is moving over. Um, brothers Anthony Collins and uh, Trent Williams have a vision uh, for taking the uh, media back. So we're moving off the platform of um, Blog Talk Radio, and they are getting a um, basically a whole website um, and all these things together to create a platform that's um, for us, by us. And so that's why I keep telling everyone to go ahead and download the YRN, your radio network, 1328 app. I was just informed today that the app is not available available for iPhone um, because Apple is, uh, I guess, what they're saying, a little bit more slow to get those things done. So it'll be available on iPhone, but if you have an Android uh, or an Android tablet and so on and so forth, you can go to your app store and download YRN 1328 app, and then you can listen to the shows live from there. You have a lot less issues um, listening to it on that app. The app is very, very high quality. Uh, so I encourage everyone to uh, to do that. Also, you know, it, the app plays music. You know, it's, a, uh, it's basically a, a radio station app. And then it plays also the reruns of the shows and so on and so forth. So we need your support on that because the whole mission, the whole goal is to um, get these shows that are bringing this information on a wider platform, even, you know, attempting to move it towards uh, serious radio networks and so on and so forth. So I encourage you to um, support us, you know, as we uh, move forward and do those things. Um, also, we have... We also have the African market coming up this weekend in the Sacramento Territory, and that's at, um, I think it's 2251 Florin Road, 
at the Sojourner Truth Center. Uh, more Unity Clothing will be there. So, uh, and we do have a few new designs coming. So I encourage you all to come out to uh, support us there. Uh, support what Brother Rod James and uh, Sister Shona McDaniels are putting together. Um, there again, you have positive uh, brothers and sisters creating a platform for us to come together and uh, conduct finance with each other. So uh, that's going to be from 10 to 5 p.m. this coming Saturday, April the 2nd. And um, lastly, we have the study classes that are in the three different territories right now. We have the study class that is biweekly on Saturday in the Sacramento Territory, we have the uh, San Jose Territory that has a biweekly uh, study class on Wednesdays. And we have the Oakland-San Francisco Territory uh, that has the weekly study class on Thursdays. Now, all of these study, these study classes, um, you can get on the mailing list for them by simply sending me an email at northgatebay at gmail.com. NorthgateBay at gmail.com. And so the Sacramento study class, the next one will be April the 9th. And again, you can get on the email list at NorthgateBay, N O R T H G A T E B E Y at gmail.com. And then I can forward that information. Uh, to the different uh, study group, you know, leads and so on and so forth. Now, what we're going to do is go ahead and jump into the information. And, again, the phone lines will be open from the very beginning. So you can make comments, ask questions, and so on and so forth. So the transatlantic slave trade uh, is something, again, that we're taught from a very, very early age that our ancestors, this is how they migrated or was, were, were captured, and, and that was basically their path, path of migration to enforce servitude. So the story, depending on the numbers that you'll deal with, they'll go from anywhere to uh, 40 million uh, with the lowest number I've seen them saying, oh, at least 12 million. And they'll give the, uh, the story of the many ships, uh, one, one ship being the, uh, well, the first ship being the, uh, the great ship, Jesus Christ. And then they'll show you a picture of a ship that they'll say was packed with about 400 people. And these voyages are taught to have taken at least three to six months, and the people were packed in with, you know, little room to move, and then carried over, and then enslaved on the newfound land, as it was called. So, for many who's on on the line, uh, this is a history that you've studied. So, we're going to do it a couple of different ways, and for the new people joining in on the show this evening. Um, I want to fill you in briefly on how we do these do these things here. 
the show is, again, going to be designed to teach you how to teach people this information because this is one of the things that you will encounter um, a lot when speaking with people about we're not, they'll say that we're not home, this is not our land, um, you know, we need to go back to the motherland, uh, we don't belong here, so on and so forth. And you need to understand how to relate to that information, to understand the angle that they're coming from, and you need to understand whether it's true or false and how to engage that individual in, in dialogue uh, that can be purposeful and help them and help you also. So I'm going to give you a number of sources, um, and we're going to go through a couple of different, um, you know, books and websites and so on and so forth. So I need you to write down the information uh, that you need to further study after the show and continue your studies from there. One of the things that we want to first study or bring to an understanding or the conditions that existed in Europe at that time, because we're talking about a, a time period uh, that will be known as the medieval period going into the Renaissance. Now, coming out of your uh, Around 500 BCE, excuse me, CE, you're going to hear about the Dark Ages. Now, dark, the Dark Ages are understood to be a time where the so-called Holy Roman Empire had collapsed in Europe. And so based on the collapse of the Holy Roman Empire, um, the whole European continent uh, as understood today, was supposed to fall in what's called the Dark Ages. This is a time of great hunger, pestilence. The people fell into poverty. Uh, there, were, there was very little trade uh, going on and so on and so forth. You had uh, the so-called vandals and sacks um, come in and, and take over different portions of the land. Um, you had smallpox, measles, the Black Plague, all these things were hitting Europe during what they're going to call the Dark Ages. Uh, this was a, also an age where you've seen a lot of people dying. So you had a population in Europe that shrank 70%. So they went to about 70% of their population died during the Dark Ages. They were in a heavy negative breeding period based on uh, the wars that were going on based on the disease and the pestilence and so on and so forth. So during, that's the Dark Ages. So you're moving into the Middle Ages, um, which these things are still going on. As the Middle Ages are, are moving forward, you're, you're, the way they teach it is that you had, you had a few different uh, things start to take place. You start to see pieces of the education system come in, um, the, uh, the papacy started to begin to allow people to read. Now, I'm telling the story from their angle. Now, we all know that this is not what happened, but this is the angle that they come from with the story. And so they're still going, you know, great 
where wars going on, you have them fighting with the the Vikings. Uh, still, the Vikings are coming in, taking large portions of the land. You know, so you still got a lot of things going on. So the reason that you want to start with the Dark Ages and understanding what's going on is because, in order to understand the transatlantic slave trade, you first need to understand the capacity for them to build things such as ships and the infrastructure that they would have needed to carry on the transatlantic slave trade. So the first thing we need to look at is, was it possible for them to build an infrastructure prior to the transatlantic slave trade that would have supported it? They would have, one of the things that they would have needed, the main thing that they would have needed was ships. So we need to look at the ship building infrastructure and enterprise during this time period. So I'm going to read off a few different ships and what kind of ships they were so that you can understand what was what was the selling equipment and their abilities at this time. So in your early Middle Ages, you had what was called a NAR. The NAR is a, is a relative of the longship, which is a type of cargo vessel used by the Vikings. It dif- differed from the longship that it was larger and relied almost entirely on its square rigged sail for propulsion. So this is a very small ship. It's similar to the ship that you see when they show the picture um, in Ikupta, or what you call Egypt on the Medinetta, where they show a, um, a small ship, kind of narrow, similar to what we would call a canoe, but a huge version of a canoe with a sail and so on and so forth. That's a gnaw. And that's one of their ships. Okay, so this is a very small ship. The High Middle Ages produced what would be called the Cog. The Cog was a single master vessel, clinker built with steep sides and a flat bottom. Although the name Cog is recorded as early as as the ninth century, the seagoing vessel of that name seems to be evolved from the Siskin coast during the 12th century. Cogs progressively replaced Viking-type ships in northern waters during the 13th century. Why this was the case is uncertain, but cars could carry more cargo than than NAR of a similar size. Their flat bottoms allowed them to settle flat in the harbor, making them easier to load and unload. So that's a car. So a car, if you can imagine, is more like what we would uh, call a small, um, a very, a very, very, very small yacht. Today, very small. That, that's if you see the pictures of a cog, C O G. That's what it looks like. It has a sail, and it's flat on top, and it has a little bit more, you know, a lot more spacing compared to the north. Now, this is the, the high Middle Ages. Okay, now your late Middle Ages produced what would be called the caravel. The Caravel was a ship developed by the Portuguese and used from the 15th century for oceanic exploration voyages. Unlike the long ship, the Cog, it was a Caravel method of construction. It could be either square-rigged or latent-rigged, 
for only Lathan Rig, the most famous example of a Caravels was a Nina and the Petit, a Pinta. So when you think of a Caravel, a Caravel is a bigger ship. It has, on the deck, it has two levels. It may have multiple sails. And it has um, not a huge amount of it sitting in the water, but it has a, a nice cargo area um, for storage below it. Now, Karak. Karak was a ship type invented in southern Europe in the 15th century, particularly developed in Portugal in the same century. It was a larger vessel than the Caravelle. Columbus ship, the Santa Maria, was a famous example of a Karak. The ship's commanded by Vasco da Gama as the Sail Gabriel with six sails, a bowsprit, bowsprit four-sail mizzen, spirit sail, and two top sails, already had the complete features and the design of a typical Carrick. So now the Carrick is a much bigger ship. It's a much bigger ship than the uh, Caravelle, the, uh, the Cog, and the Nar. This ship uh, may have two different layers on the top, meaning it may have uh, the regular um, platform area, and then it may have areas above that in the front and in the back. So you, on this ship, there also may be a, a, look, a lookout area, a long pole, with a, a round day, um, top where people can climb to the top and use binoculars and things like that to look ahead. It also was a sail. So of course, th during this time, these are sailboats. These are all wind sailboats. Now, the story, storage area is still a little bit bigger than uh, the Caravella, still a little bit bigger. So the ships are progress progressively you know, as we're going on in the time, getting a little bit bigger. Now you have the small vessels. A number of smaller vessels are named in English sources of the late Middle English, some of which continued in the 16th century and beyond. Now you have the crayer. A crayer uh, is a vessel of 20 to 50 tons used largely on the cross-channel trade. You have the hoy. A hoy originated in Flanders in the 15th century. A single master vessel, usually 20 to 80 tons, used on a coastal or short sea routes as well as a lighter. The type would evolve into the 16th and 17th century, only finally disappearing in the early 19th century. So the, the Hoi is, is one of the bigger ships, but it was a short sailing ship. It was not meant for long voyages. Now you have the, the Piscard. P or the Picard, that's P-I-C-A-R-D. Now, the first recorded is 1320. Now, the Picard was a single master vessel of 10 to 40 tons used mainly to support vessels for fishing fleets, bringing home the catches and ferrying supplies as a lighter loading from vessels at anchor and discharging onto the beaches or shallow creeks, a widespread type in use from Scotland, all around English coast, and across Ireland. Now, those are the ships of your early Middle Ages. 
So at this point, the ships are not very big, up to 50 tons and so on and so forth. But now 50 tons sounds like a lot, but you, we have to remember that these are wood ships. So 50 tons, although it's extremely heavy, is not huge. Okay, these are not huge ships. So they're not ships in this at this time period that can support four, five, six hundred people. Okay, now when you get to the early uh, the early Middle Ages, you have what is called the longship. Now, the longship was a type of ship that was developed over a period of centuries and perfected by its most famous user, the Viking. In approximately the ninth, the ninth century, the ships were clicker built, utilizing overlapping wooden stakes. Straits, excuse me, S T R A K E S. Now, what's important to understand is that these were Viking ships. Okay, these were not ships belonging to Europe. These were Viking ships. And you must understand that because that, although that ship is, is a lot bigger, um, it's not a European ship. So these are not ships that they have. You also have the galley. The galley has been in, in use for trade and war for since at least the 8th century B.C. and remained in use throughout the Middle Ages. Rowing was the primary method of, of propulsion, rowing, which was well suited for often fickle winds of the Mediterranean, where they were primarily used. The galley was also used in the waters of Northern Europe, but to a lesser extent since its low freeboard and lack of stability in rough waters made it vulnerable. So this ship is not meant for rough waters. So this is not an ocean voyage ship. So this is not a ship that can go out into the rough. Uh, it, it doesn't have the stability factors for that. And it is a row ship. So, you know, this, this is a ship where they're rowing. Okay, it's not a wind ship. Now, you get to the high Middle Ages. You have the Ballinger. Now, the Ballinger was a clinker-built ore vessel, initially with a single mast, but in the 5th century, in the 5th century is the 1400s, larger vessels had a second mast. They were usually small vessels of 40 to 60 tons, but larger vessels of up to 120 tons are recorded. Ballingers were popular in the Bay of Piscay and English Channel and were used both for trade and warfare, fast and with the flexibility of oars and sails for propulsion. They were commonly used by pirates. And this is this this vessel only goes up to sixty tons, but there's but there were a few that went up to one hundred and twenty tons, but only a few, and they were for trade and warfare. So this was a more of a uh, this was a vessel that can be converted if you went to war. And then you have the late Middle Ages. You have the Berlin, B-I-R-L-I-N-N. In the waters off of west of Scotland between 1263 and 1500, the lords of the Isles used galleys both for warfare and for transport around their maritime domain, which included the west coast of Scottish Highlands and Hebrides, 
and Antrim in Scotland. They employed these ships to sea battles for attacking castles for forts, forts uh, built close to the area. As a feudal superior, the Lord of the Isles required the services of specified number of and size of galleys from each holding of land. For example, the Isle of Man had to, to provide six galleys, 26 oars, and Sleet and Sky had to provide 18 oar galleys. Carvings of galleys on a tombstone from 1350 onwards show the construction of the vessel. So they're just basically saying that um, different areas had to have different amounts of these ships. So one, the, the emperor, ruler, king may require uh, one of his provinces to have 26. Another one, province, um, port area may have 18. Okay, so those are the ships. Those are important, extremely important to understand because now we just looked into whether or not were there ships built in these in the Middle Ages up to the 1400s. Now, the largest ship that we've seen that they had was 120 tons, and that was a war vessel and used for trade. But there were very, very, very few of those. Now, the other thing that we want to keep in mind is that the time that it would take to manufacture and build a ship, how long would it take to build a ship that's 120 tons? Now, we can't look at it from today's standards because there was no mass shipbuilding industry. There was no factory or assembly line. Most of your shipbuilders, you know, were master shipbuilders and architects and so on and so forth. They had understood high levels of mathematics. And that's important because not many people during the Middle Ages would have that degree of knowledge. So it was a very small amount of people who would have the ability and the possibility to build a ship and put together a crew to get these ships together. Okay, so when you're looking at when you're looking at that faction, that part of it, understand that the degree of knowledge that it took for shipbuilding and the maritime industry was not vast. This was a very narrow field that very few understood, and those who did were paid a high ransom or a high price to build these ships. And remember, the only ship that we've seen with the possibility of being a really large ship is at 120 tons. Now, if you want, take, the t- take a moment as I'm talking and Google a ship that's 120 tons and see what that looks like. And then Google a ship that's, a six, that's 60 tons and see what they look like, wood ships. Not metal, but Google a 120-ton wo- wood ship. See the size of those. Okay, that's, that's going to be very important for you to keep that in mind as you're dealing with this subject matter. Now, <clears throat> let's look at, we're going to skip to what they say about slave ships. So now we've seen the ships that, they, that were available. And coming out of the reason that we do, again, that timeline is because coming into the early 1400s, 
these shifts had to already be available. It would take to build um, a ship would take approximately anywhere from two to five years, depending on the size of that ship. Two to five years for one ship. Ships were not built in a month, two months, three months, four months. We're speaking about things that took two to five years to build. And these are not the ships, uh, the bigger ships. We're speaking about the ones that may go up to 60 tons. This is, a, this is at least a two-year, it's going to take at least two years to get that done. So what, what are they saying about the condition of a slave ship? says the owners of slave ship did their best to hold as many slaves, enslaved people as possible. Cramming, chaining, and, and selector grouping techniques were used to maximize space and make travel profitable. Those that were on ships were underfed and treated with brutality, which caused some of them to die before even boarding the ships. These people, these people also were not treated as human as the enslaved were naked, and shackled together with several different types of animalistic chains. Not only were they treated in an inhumane fashion, they lived like animals throughout their long voyage to the New World. Most of the captives were on the floor beneath the bunks with no room at all to move. Most of the most spent their entire time not being able to move due to the cramped conditions. Accounts from enslaved discuss the fact that they spent a large portion of time pinned to flat floorboards, which would wear skin on their elbows down to the bone. First-hand accounts from former slaves such as Aluda Akuno described the horrific conditions that enslaved people were forced to endure. Now, the, when it's speaking, there's a section of this that speaks about the Atlantic slave trade. It says, only a few decades after the arrival of Europeans to America, demand for unpaid labor to work plantations made slave trading profitable, a profitable business. The peak time of slave ships to the Atlantic Passage was between 18th and 19th centuries, and that's 1700s to the 1800s, when large plantations developed in colonies of America. In order to retrieve profits, the owners of the ships divided their holes. Now, pay attention to this. Divided their holes. Now, the holes is that storage area that we were just talking about. With holes, with their hear them, so they could transport as many slaves as possible. Eugenic conditions, dehydration, dysentery, and scurvy led to high mortality rates. On average, 15% and up to a third of capital. Often the ships, also known as uh, guineamen, transported hundreds of slaves who were chained tightly to plank beds. For example, the slave ship Henrietta Marie carried about 200 slaves on the long middle passage. They were confined to cargo holds with each slave chained with no room to move. The most significant routes of the slave ships led from the northwestern and western coast of Africa to South America and southeast coast of what is today the United States and the Caribbean. 
as many as 20 million Africans were transported by ship. The transportation of slaves from Africa to America was known as the Middle Passage. But keep that number 20 million in mind because it's important. They say 20 million, that there are a possibility of 20 million people because we need to look at that. We need to look at that number and see if that number is possible. So they said that they divided their whole. So if your hull, if your ship is 70, 70 feet long, so the entire ship being 70 feet long, so a 60-ton 60, 60 ship, we can say that we'll even say it's 80 feet long. Now, a hull is generally not something that you can completely stand up in in, in in those older boats. So in most older boats, the holes were not long enough for a a five foot nine or five foot ten individual to stand up completely. Okay, they were storage centers and, and if you were in there you generally was going to be um you know, bent over and so on and so forth. So let's say, though, for benefit of the doubt's sake, that you could stand up, which meant that the whole area, if the whole ship is 80 feet long, your whole area below the ship, let's say, would be uh, 60 feet. Let's say it's 60 feet long. And on average, it's going to be about 14 uh, about 14 feet wide. So you have an, an area of um, 60 feet long, 14 foot feet wide, and from uh, floor to ceiling uh, is about five and a half feet. So we and, and that was the hole. So that was the storage area. So in that in that article, they're saying that they would convert that area into an area where they would put the enslaved. Now, to a certain degree, if you're just looking at it mentally, that may make sense. But let's take a, a deeper look at that. So this is the bottom of the boat that we're speaking of. So we're, we're speaking of the bottom of a boat, not the top of the boat, the bottom of the boat. Some common sense things that you should know is that there can be no hole in the bottom of a boat. Now, some of you may be asking, why does that matter? Why would there need to be a hole some sort of of area in the back of the boat, I mean, in the bottom of the boat. Well, according to the article, and many articles you will read, they will tell you that, again, the people were chained with very uh, little room to move and were basically captive down there for the whole voyage. 
coming up very sparingly. And in fact, it would be very difficult to come up if you got 200 people packed into an area that's 60 feet by 14 feet. 60 by 14. 60 feet by 14 feet. If you got 200 people packed in that area. Now, if you want to mentally think about an area that's 60 feet by 14 feet, look at a building, an inside of a building uh, that may be 7 to 800 square feet. Think of taking people in a, let's say, 800 square feet room, taking 200 people and telling them to line up next to each other. Now, what problem that presents is the fact that in order to get the last person out, you have to clear everyone else out, right? Because these, this is their ships. So the reason you needed a hole in that ship was because if you're not letting the people up, even if they're only eating a little bit, and even if they're not urinating as frequently as someone who um, eats daily, then they're still going to be on a daily basis people who are urinating and passing fecal matter. So you would need some sort of drainage system within the boat. It would be mandatory. It would be mandatory to have some sort of drainage system within that boat. When you are looking into the gases that are emitted, emitted by fecal matter and urine on a very small common sense basis, you can look into if your son, daughter, um, more by the more by this, male, female, goes into a restroom, uses the bathroom, they urinate, they forget to flush. You leave your house, they close the bathroom door. There's no windows open. You leave the house for the day. You're gone approximately um, six hours. You come back, someone goes to use the restroom. They open that door. Anyone who's experienced that will tell you that the smell that comes out of there is, is horrible. It's pneumonia. It's ammonia, excuse me. And immediately it pushes you back and repels you back. And that's the smell that, that comes from leaving urine. Now, mind you, this is urine left in a bowl of water. And there's more water normally than urine. But the urine is, is, is powerful enough to omit 
such a powerful smell of ammonia that it repulses you. Now, the study on on ammonia and urine and the effects of it is extremely difficult to find. So you're going to have to do some digging. And it also produces uh, carbonate. Now, carbonate is is known to cause um, lung failure, slows down your rate of breathing, uh, because it messes up your lung capacity. Long exposures, of course, when dealing with the lungs, will lead to death. So from a scientific standpoint, is it possible to, on a three-month voyage, even if you bring the people up once every three days, which they say they did not do, okay? So we know, I'm just saying once every three days, but we know they never said they did that. If they run the people up once every three days to wash them, so then they, they would be sitting, sleeping, inhaling, inhaling all during the day ammonia and carbonate. Not only that, but because the people, they will tell you, in many cases, were stacked on top of each other. Remember, they tell you that they were stacked on top of each other, which means that the people on top would be urinating on the people below. And the people below would not be able to really move. So then what does that look like? What what does that look like to now be urinating on the people below you? Because now we've entered into another scientific issue. Because now we're speaking of the fact that if you were to um, drink fecal matter or eat fecal matter, poop, if you were to eat it, it's poisonous. However, it would be almost impossible over the course of three days for that not to happen if people are urinating and passing stool above you, even if it's just one or two people. It would be almost impossible because you can't move. So for that three days, and again, we're just saying three days, you would have to not open your mouth and figure out some way to cover your nose because they had converted their warships and their trade ships into vessels for enslavement. Because this is what they're saying that they did. Because they're not telling you. And if you try to look up who was the architect, who is the architect of your, your slave 
ships. You won't find one. There's no mentioned or named architect that's given. So they don't pin it or let you know anyone, but if you if you do your research, you can find the architect of the of the uh the NAR. You can find the architect of the Berlin, the Ballinger, the Longship. You can find the architect for the Picard, but you can't find the architect, the one who laid the plans, because there would have to be plans, who laid the design to change your war vessel and change your trade uh, vessel into a ship capacity to carry two to three hundred people. There's no architect given. That architect does not exist. So it almost leads anyone with a reasonable mind to think that um, they just did it themselves. But mathematically, we know that shipbuilding is based on mathematics. And that if we're speaking about being able to um, have a lucrative trade, things mathematically would have to line up. You can't just haphazardly design an area to hold 300 people just because you think it'll hold 300 people. So someone would have had to have to have the intellectual capacity to convert and redesign these areas. There's no one in history given. The way that it's it's written is that all of a sudden they just decided to do it. That's the history of it. That's how they that's how they speak about it. If anyone has seen the information, um, please push one, chime in, and present it um, so that we all know where it's at. Because with my research, I've never seen anyone they said constructed and converted these areas for the people. Never seen that person. Now, so then, let's get to, or uh, let's get to the the issue of dealing with the people in our Kevlar line, or what we call Africa. Predominantly, at this point, they're going to stay on the west coast of Africa. Now, on the west coast of Africa, you're going to have uh, quite a few different tribes. Today, a lot of those areas are known as um, Mali, uh, Mesopotamia, not Mesopotamia, Mauritania. You have Algeria, You also have um, Morocco, which is on your your northwestern. You have Angola, Nigeria, and a host of other um, countries that are now considered the West Coast. 
Now, knowing that these ships are carrying only, let's say, this is prior to the enslavement. So these are Europeans now going on voyages. These ships are carrying, let's say, a crew of 60. A crew of 60. Now, the other thing to remember, to put in context, is that there is no mass industry for gun making. That at this time in history, all guns, all guns are single shooters and, and take an, uh, an extreme amount of time to reload. Okay, so it is not modern-day weapons. So you're, you have a single shooter. The cannon was a single shooter. And what they're telling you is that what they did is that they would take crews of 60, let's say up to 200, 300 men, and they would invade um, different parts of Africa. And then they would steal the people. Now, understand that they don't know the terrain. They don't know know the terrain. So they're going to a foreign place. They don't know this area. Anyone who studies military, um, studies, you know, military law and and, and, uh, strategy will tell you that one of the primary things you need to know is the terrain because the terrain can dictate a loss or win just as much as any anything else. Meaning that if you don't know or have enough supplies to deal with the terrain, for instance, you hit a mountainous region and you have to get over the mountainous region in order to get to the tribes, but to get over the mountain, it takes you another three-day hike and you only bought supplies for a total of five days because you assumed that the people lived on the coastal region only and that the populations on the coast were not very dense, so you needed to go over the mountain. But you didn't bring enough supplies to do that. Well, in war, that's going to lead to a failure because your people are going to be starving, dehydrated, and even if you get over the mountain, you would, have to, you would have to be able to decimate the tribe in order to get their food and so on and so forth. And at the same time, again, you're carrying weapons, single-shooter weapons, and you don't know the terrain. Now, this is the condition of which they're telling you that they went into to Africa and began to take the people out. From a simple military strategy standpoint, that's not going to happen. No military commander at this point, even today, goes into foreign territory that way. We have a uh, question or a comment coming in, so I'm going to pause. 
can bring in 916, area code 470. 916, area code 470. Islam. Islam, are you there? I, I, I'm sorry, it's a mistake. Oh, no problem, no problem. Okay, so you didn't okay. mean to push one. Okay, I got you. Yeah, thank you. Okay. So, again, the lines are open. Um, if you want to ask a question, make a comment um, from, the, from, the very, from the very beginning. You don't have to wait to the end of the show or any, um, any other time and so on and so forth. So, again, we're speaking of them going into an unfamiliar terrain. And again, those who study military strategy know that you don't do that. Even if you read the Art of War, the Art of War, um, it's it's considered um, a huge military um, style to go into unknown terrain and invade. So they would have had to send spies, which we know they did. Now, we know they did send spies. We know they did send missionaries. We know that that did happen in some of the tribes. So we're not dispelling that part. However, understand also that at this point in time, probably the most densely populated place in in the world would have been Africa. So even if you did send a spy, they didn't go into the east of Africa. They didn't go into the center of Africa. They went to the coastal regions. And they're saying that out of the coastal regions, they took 20 million people from the coast. Because they don't tell you, again, that any of the enslaved people came from Egypt, Ethiopia, Sudan. So we're just talking about the coast. They only really tell you about a couple of places, Mali, Sierra Leone, which is where they say the first uh, enslaved African came from, and so on and so forth. So from that little coast, the story is that they took 20 million people. So we know based on military strategy that there's a high possibility that they did not go into into, uh, these countries taking people, not in the um, amounts that they're speaking of, not in those amounts. Because in order to get to that amount of people, they would have simply had to go all the way in and create a huge conflict and decimate the the, uh, the tribes and so on and so forth. And because most of your men, or high percentage of your men in tribes at this point in history are warriors, You have very few men who are docile at this point. You have basically a few different classes of men because a lot of the things such as uh, dealing with the fields or farming is actually what women did in those societies. So men did not work fields uh, in the society as you may see men do today. It was actually women who dealt with the gardening and, you know, who were herbalists um, and who were high priestesses and things of that nature. So your man class actually was more towards uh, your, your warriors and your protectors 
and so on and so forth. So in order to create a conflict, you would have had to decimate most of that class and kill them. But the story is that they brought 20 million and a high, the high majority of them were men. From the area, so we know that that's a, that's that's not a high probability. I'm not saying that um, they couldn't have got a few on the coastline, but based on the setup and the lack of knowledge of terrain, it's highly unlikely that they went in that way. So then, when we're looking at the fact that the ship's capacity is not completely capable. We don't have a designer of a ship. We know these people were just coming out of the dark ages. We know that for a fact. So we know that intellectually, whatever, most of the things that they learned, if we are really doing the history, we know that all the shipbuilding actually was done by the Moors. All the knowledge of of sailing came from the Moors. The University of Salamanca was the first actual university set up in Europe, and that was set up by the Moors. That the whole peasant, what they would be termed as a peasant class in Europe during the Dark and Middle Ages, made up probably about um, 95 to 98% of the people. So 95 to 98% of the people were considered the peasants. They couldn't read and they couldn't write. So we know that that class wasn't shipbuilding, and you can do the numbers on that. The huge majority of people in Europe in the dark, middle, and early Renaissance were considered peasants, and they could not read or write. So even into your 14 and 1500s, because these are the times of the Renaissance, most of your people still can't read and write. So now you have to ask, who, who is doing all this shipbuilding? Because even in, in today, if you can't read a diagram and you can't understand um, geometry, you can't build a ship. You won't even be allowed to put a screw in the ship. So then the question becomes, who was doing it? Now let's deal with the mathematical equation that's presented. Mathematically, they tell you that the high, the biggest time, or actually, let me find it here. Okay, so let's look at again the mathematics. And as we do, we're going to read. Um, I'm going to read something to you from for uh, about Jamestown. 
Because remember, Jamestown is where they say that the first um, ship landed with enslaved Africans. And it says that many scholars agree that captain and crew of the Dutch ship stole their value, valuable human cargo from San Juan Batista, a Portuguese merchant slaver, and had been making its way from the West African port town of Luanda, Angola, to Veracruz. The raid of the Portuguese ship took place on, on the high seas, and when the Dutch adventurers arrived in Virginia, they traded the Africans to Jamestown settlers in exchange for food. If these Africans indeed hailed from Luanda, which was then the newly established capital of the Portuguese colony of Angola, it is likely that they had been trading with Europeans for years, that they spoke a language in common with the Europeans, and that they were Christians. It is possible that these characteristics enabled them to escape a life of slavery, which was to become the fate of the more ethnically and linguistically diverse groups of Africans that arrived in North America in the later years. The social status of first Africans in Jamestown was confusing and perhaps deliberately ambiguous. Records from 1623 and 1624 list the black inhabitants of the colony as servants, not slaves. In these same records, however, the white indentured servants are listed along with the along the year in which they were to attain freedom. No such year accompanies the names of the black servants. Freedom was the birthright of William Tucker, the first African born in the colonies. Yet court records show that at least one African had been declared a slave by 1640, the year that the slavery was officially instituted in Jamestown. After the legalization of slavery by Virginia, by the Virginia colony, the African population began to slowly and stead- to grow slowly and steadily. The number of blacks increased from 23 in 1625 to approximately 3,000 in 1650. 3,000 in 1650. Now, maybe ask why that's important. Because if in 1650 we're starting with 3,000, then mathematically we have to divide 20 million by a certain amount of years. So if, if 3,000 approximately in 1650, that's almost zero basically. And we know that the import and export of enslaved Africans was told to have stopped left in 18, 1850. That's about 200 years. So we're taking 20 million, I met by 200. So 20 million divided by 200 is 100,000 per year. 100,000 per year. 
is what they're teaching you that came over here. Now, we just seen the fact that it took two to five years to build a ship. That their ships that they used were converted war and trade ships with the majority being less than 60 tons and very few being 120 tons. So if you so if you take a hundred thousand and you divide that by three hundred and sixty five. So a hundred thousand divided by three hundred and sixty five, which is going to tell you the daily amount, the daily amount of of people that they needed to have, have come in here on a daily amount on a day-to-day basis for 200 years, they had to have daily 275 people, daily. On a daily basis, they needed 275 people coming. Now, if they're telling you that 20 million came, and they needed 275 per day to make that possible from 1650 to 1850. And we're being very generous with these years, okay? I'm not worried about whether the exact year is on point. I'm just giving you some approximate in years to, give the, to even give the argument a benefit of the doubt. 275 per day. So now that meant that you had to have ships that had a hull that could hold close to 300 people three months at the very least to make this voyage. So in order to make this voyage possible, You would have to have at least, at least, because you got to remember, some of the ships get damaged. Some of the ships can't sail. Some of the ships get lost on their way to the coast. All these things happen. So you need at least a fleet, a personal fleet of 500 ships. Because for every one ship that lands, one has to be leaving. So for every one that lands, right when they when they when they uh, uh, come into the pier, to the port, there has to be one leaving. And on top of that, mathematically, you have to have enough people over on the other side rounding up two to three hundred people per day. So the people who were in Africa capturing people 
had to be getting 275 people per day for 200 years per day. They had to get 275 people per day for 200 years in order for it to be remotely possible for them to take 20 million people. So you had to have 275 captives. And you have a single shooter, single shooter weapon. You're fighting people who have spears, bow and arrows, and know the terrain. The people you are fighting have spears, long-range weapons, bow and arrow, long-range weapons, know the terrain backwards and forwards. They've already been at war before, so this is not new. It is a fact that one of the most feared styles of warfare is called guerrilla warfare, which if you study military practices, they will tell you that was the type of warfare that our ancestors ensued. It was called guerrilla warfare. It is actually a military study of Europeans now. They still study our guerrilla warfare tactics. So they're telling you when you go to school that they had enough manpower and firepower because in order to capture 275, the question becomes how many did you have to kill? Because you're not going one for one because in order to get to 275 captured, captured, that meant that you probably have to kill at least a thousand to be able to round up two hundred and seventy five. How would you have the manpower when you have ships? You have ships that only can hold two hundred. There's no mass building industry for weapons, and there's no ship mass shipbuilding industry. So every time you took a shot. It took you a few seconds to reload. It may take you, let's say, five, five to ten seconds. And five to ten seconds in war, that's a long time. And the weapons are extremely inaccurate. Those pistols cannot shoot from a distance. So the pistols in those days had to be very close. You had to be very, very close. So if you took 20 million, that meant that you had to approximately kill at least two to one, 60 million. Militarily, in order to to get this amount of people, you're trying, you're getting them to surrender and you're getting them to capture. Now you may wander on some tribes that don't have the sophistication or not a war or warring tribes. They're more nomadic, you know, a wandering tribe and so on and so forth. You may be able to capture them. 
But the vast majority of of the people of Africa at this point had been to war before. We had been here thousands of years. We were not new to the planet. We had been warring with each other for thousands of years. Right, wrong, or indifferent, war was not new. Okay, now let's bring in the other angles of the information. <laughs> because right now, anyone with half a brain can see that the story is not looking too good. So let's look at what did some of the early explorers, what was some of the written history about the people here? What was that? Who did the explorers or, or what did the older books or what do the older books say about the people? Let's look at a book that's written in, in the early 1800s. Well, excuse me, actually um, 1895, so uh, latter 1800s. And this is one of um, my favorite books, Ancient and Modern Britons. And actually, before I read that, we have a caller at 347 Exchange 443. Area code three four seven exchange four four three Islam. Islam family, this is Teresa Maru, my CEO calling from Northwestern Mexico. Islam, sis. You can hear me clear? Yeah, you're good. Okay. Um, I just wanted to say like I'm loving the show so far. You're really dismantling this whole slave story. You know, like you're really poking holes into what the European has been brainwashing our people with for I don't even know how long now. And um I love how you said, you know, um war is nothing new, you know, and essentially because war is nothing new, slavery is really nothing new. And um I wanted to uh just just bring up I I don't mean the sidetrack, but I do wanna I do wanna bring up um the the Burberry slave trade. Mm-hmm. The Barbary slave trade, excuse me. Like it was like, and this is mm-hmm. as recent as uh, the was it the sixteenth, uh, the sixteenth to I want to say the eighteenth century, where the Africans mm-hmm. were enslaved the Europeans, you know. And this is where Indeed. we get certain things with um, uh, where they say blackmail. This is really in reference mm-hmm. to ties and the offerings that they had to, uh, they had to retrieve in order to. Um, gain ransom, you know, like they had to uh, uh, tally up a ransom for their families because the the Moors mm-hmm. were, you know, they were holding them captive, you know, and then you come up mm-hmm. with the pirate stories and all this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But that's just another segment that I wanted to um, that I want to interject for anybody who's doing studies in this. Like, this is nothing. Like, slavery is really nothing new. And honestly, it's mm-hmm. just the grim law of retribution coming back on us for the things that we've mm-hmm. done, or our ancestors have done. And it's our time to correct this, which is why Noble Ali came and said, we got to learn to love instead of hate. 
you know, so Islam. And Islam, indeed. And, you know, it's not really a, a, uh, I said it's not really a sidetrack, you know, because the truth Uh is is that when we're speaking about um, the the transatlantic slave trade, you know, the you, you mentioned the uh, the Vikings, you know, for all uh, those, and I'm sure as a scholar you already know, sis, but for those who don't, the original name of the Vikings, V-I-K-I-N-G-S, okay, it's actually the Vikings, V-I-C-K-I-N-G-S, okay, those are the Vikings, and they become the Vikings after colonial uh, after Europeans colonially, you know, rewrite the history. So mm-hmm. then they took that history and painted, you know, more pale faces on the history and called those the Vikings. Right. But the Vikings were the ones coming in who were the master sailors and were called yeah. the pirates. Mm-hmm. And so when those pirates were coming in, we were enslaving the Europeans we were raping uh, the women. We were stealing um, all types of things. This is just what was we going on. We were selling the women. That we were, yeah. And, 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 I, mean, yeah. This is, I mean, it's a dead, but we were honestly selling the women like a high commodity at that time. Because when it comes yeah. to, like, some people honestly don't know that around the Renaissance, where the Moorish sons were, you know, going around conquering things, and they, they would take mm-hmm. these um the the pale the pale skinned uh blonde haired women into the harem. They mm-hmm. it was their commodity. It was it was something that it was like a treasure for them. You know, so it, mm-hmm. it, it's 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 kinda of, it's reversed in a way back then when you mm-hmm. go into the um mm-hmm. into the Renaissance era. Right. Yeah, she right. was considered a breeder at the time. And so based on her being considered a breeder, she was taken into herms and then, you know, uh, was forced to, you know, produce children. Mm-hmm. Now, as you and said... And another reason... We, oh, I'm sorry. I just want to say no, that ahead. another reasoning for that was because um, it was mainly the European males that held a lot of the diseases. It wasn't necessarily the, the, the European women who held diseases, so... It wasn't uh, um, when it came to the European males that we put. It's like the the the, the more pushed them and kind of put them into their own little corner because of you know everything or the or the um, you know disease and pestilence that they came with. So that was another mm-hmm. that was another key point I wanted to touch on as well. That's wild. That's wild. Well. I appreciate that because that is vital information for anyone who is going to, you know, branch off into the different avenues of study. It's very, very important that they understand all these different things that was going on and why they were happening. You know, like mm-hmm. when we were talking about the Vikings, that's the Vikings. You know, mm-hmm. you can actually chart the um, enslavement of the Albion, Caucasian, Germanic woman all the way back, um, and you'll find it in writings where she was actually taken all over the planet, uh, at least at least written history tells you 1 A.D. You can find it in um. written history at least from 1 A.D. Now, you can actually find it earlier than that, but most people don't want to or won't go into a lot of those books. 
but you can find they it in really regular should. books. Right, from at least one AD where the European woman was taken as a breeder all over the planet. And she was sold or traded, whatever word the person wants to put on it, as a commodity in exchange for food, clothing, guns by her own sons because she was not considered a helper at the time. She was a burden because she could not fight. And this is to them. And to us, it was we seen her as a breeder. Mm-hmm. And, and and now and, you know that's a whole nother show because now we're getting into what she was actually bre- you know bred for. Yeah, the genetics. What, what she yeah. Was, right, genetics. Trying to bring it back. You know, so <laughs> right. So right. You know, we won't go we won't go all the way over there. However, mm-hmm. um, these are th- this is we're speaking about science and this is what was going on, whether we like it or not, is irrelevant. This is just what was happening. Mm-hmm. So. Right, right. All right, well, Islam. I appreciate the show, family. Islam. Yeah. So, so we want to go into what did the early, or what did the early explorers say? Because right now we've seen that they needed 275 people per day, and they needed to have at least 500 ships um, on a yearly basis. The 500 ships is per year, okay? You you need to have 500 ships running daily, running daily, okay? So we know that's that's probably not possible. That's probably not possible because there was no mass shipbuilding industry. I don't know that I have never seen where any any, uh, Europeans at this time, any European kingdom or area, had 500 ships. I have yet to read that. Again, these are people who were coming out of the Middle Ages or was, you know, the Dark Ages and so on and so forth. How would they have 500 ships? And not only 500 ships, but you would have to have 500 ships mathematically that could carry 275 people in the hole down below where there is no area that for ventilation, and there's no area where the urine and fecal matter would run out. So you can't have a hole at the bottom of the ship because the bottom of the ship is in the water. So where's the fecal matter going to drain to? So it's just going to have to sit there. So then the question becomes, if the fecal matter is just going to sit there because there's no hole, how did, even if they allowed the ancestors to come up, they still couldn't have removed the fecal matter. There was no water hoses. And even if there was a water hose, where are they going to push the fecal matter to? There's no hole down there. Get my point? There's no hole down there. So what are they going to do with that? And you can't push something up because there's not enough force to push fecal matter and urine up and out. So you can't build a, a ramp for the fecal matter to run upward to run out. Not possible. So let's see what some of the early explorers 
said about the people here. Ancient and Modern Britons, page 374, says, Still, this does show these people to us in a stronger light than that in which they are, re- are placed in 19th century writers. This tells us that England, England was overrun last century by large companies of marauders. This book is written in 1895, who soared upon the agricultural caste of England much as they did in Ireland and Scotland, to the great terror of these agriculturists. And these oppressors were black oppressors, like those of the Welsh Mobingian. The Englishmen who had colonized the western shores of the Atlantic, the Englishmen who had colonized the western shores of the Atlantic, not more than a hundred, not more than a generation or two before gross. Indians there as being black as gypsies. In sixteen seventy six, the native races of New England in sixteen seventy six, the native races of New England. In 1676, the native races of New England were spoken of indifferently as Indians and Moors. In 1676, the native races of New England were spoken of indifferently as Indians and Moors, and our British Indians are also remembered as Moors. Therefore, growth is virtually telling us that large companies of Moors or black people roamed up and down the country rather more than 100 years ago, taking very considerable contributions from the forming classes and others besides being possessed of many fierce and aggressive qualities. And these Moors, at that quite recent period, had not relinquished the custom that distinguished those black people against whom Caesar fought. Those 18th century Moors, 18th century, 18th century which is the 1700s, those black people whom against Caesar fought, those 18th century Moors were also painted people. So he just said that in 1676, the native races of New England were Moors and were considered black as gypsies. And that's 1676. Ancient and modern Brits, 
Griffins by David McRitchie. It was written in around 18, I think, 95. Now let's look at another book. This one is written in 1926 by a sister named Drusilla Dungy Houston, who was a highly respected scholar during that time. Drusilla Dungy Houston. The name of the book is Wonderful Ethiopians of the Ancient Kushite Empire. Wonderful Ethiopians of the Ancient Kushite Empire. It says, I'm going to read two paragraphs to give you, bring you in on what she's speaking about before, she, before we get to the part that you need to really hear. It says, Rollins continues, the first inventors of any art are among the greatest benefactors of mankind, and the bold steps they take from the known to the unknown, from blank to ignorance, to discovery or equal to many subsequent steps of progress. Bunsen says in his philosophy of ancient history, the hermetic family at Rollins proves, proves must be given credit for being the foundation of civilization. This family comprised the ancient Ethiopians, the Egyptians, the original Canaanites, and the old Chaldeans. The inscriptions of the Chaldean monuments prove their race affinity. The Bible proves their relationship. It names the sons of Ham as Cush, Mizram, Put, and the race of Canaan. Mizram, people Egypt. And Canaan, the land later possessed by the Hebrews. Put, located in Africa, and Cush extended his colonies over a wide dominion. Cush extended his colonies over a wide dominion. Bunsen concludes by saying, Cushite colonies were all along the southern shores of Asia and Africa and by the archaeological remains along the southern and eastern coast of Arabia. The name Cush was given to four great areas, Media, Persia, Susana, and Area, or the whole territory between the Indus and Tigris in prehistoric times. In Africa, the Ethiopians, the Egyptians, the Liberians, and the Canaanites and Phoenicians were all descendants of Ham. They were a black or dark-colored race and pioneers of our civilization. They were emphatically, they were emphatically the monument builders of the plains of Shinar and the Valley of the Nile from Moreau to Memphis. In southern Arabia, they erected wonderful edifices. They were responsible for you for the monuments. They were responsible for the monuments that dot southern Siberia and in America along the valley of the Mississippi down to Medico and in Peru, their images and monuments stand a voiceless witness. Read it again. Cush was given four 
great areas. Media, Persia, Susana, and area are the whole territory between the Indus and Tigris in prehistoric times. In Africa, the Ethiopians, Egyptians, the Liberians, Canaanites, Phoenicians were all descendants of Ham. They were a black or dark colored race and the pioneers of our civilization. They were emphatically, emphatically the monument builders on the plains of Shinar and the Valley of the Nile from Moreau to Memphis. In southern Arabia, they erected wonderful edifices. They were responsible for the monuments that dot southern Siberia and in America, along the valley of the Mississippi, down to Medico and in Peru, their images and monuments stand a voiceless witness. This was the ancient Kushite empire of Ethiopians that covered three worlds. Some of our later books recognizing their indisputable influence in primitive cultures Speak of them as brunette brown race representing a mysterious theonistic culture, heliolithic culture. So this was the ancient Kushite empire that was found here in the Americas. Is researchable that there were a hundred million at least a hundred million people here prior to European colonization. A hundred million. There's a book called A Star in the West by Elias Bendino. In the book A Star in the West, which was written in 1835, he tells you that it is a known fact that the Israelites, who we just were speaking of, and the Carthaginians, who were the Phoenician Moors, had peopled the Americas in antiquity. So it's a known fact that the Israelites and the Carthaginians had peopled the Americas already. He also notes in that book, again, the book is called A Star in the West, and the author is Elias Boninot, B-O-U-D-I-N-O-T, B-O-U-D-I-N-O-T. He also says that the Indians 
were a brown, a black, brown, and red people and were very fond of their color and took every measure to increase it, preferring it to the pale, and that they had a pale, I mean, a a name for those who were pale that was that showed that they were not very fond of them. When Columbus, in his journals, said that the people he encountered looked just like the people who were the Solomon Islanders or the Canary Islanders, the people of the Canary Isles. And those people, a dark, melanated hue. Cortez, in his diaries, describes the people and his son describe the people of being of an African stock. In your early descriptions, in your early paintings, depictions, drawings of the aboriginal indigenous people, they are all dark. You have to look prior to 1750. After 1750, they completely lighten up and make the images pale. These are known facts. I have not given my opinion. This is a fact. If you look up the depictions of the people, they have all the portraits, all the depictions, all the true Original first-person depictions will show people of a dark, melanated hue. Phenotypically, there was lots of different features. You will find Cortez, uh, no, Columbus, Cologne, he would describe the hair that he sees similar to horse hair meaning that it was a coarse, straight, but slightly kinky hair. But remember, he sailed to one part, which was central, al Morocco, of Mexico, or what we call America. He sailed to the central part. The Aztecs travels line up with Afu Bukhari and his travels when they tell about the time periods. The Aztecs told Cortez that prior to going into um, the regions that we now call Medico, that they were actually in the hills of Florida and that they were newcomers They were newcomers to this region. The Aztecs that they were newcomers 
to the region. And when you line up the timeline that they presented, lines up with the ships that came from the voyage of the Malian king, Afubakari, who was never seen again in Mali. And so it can be theorized that the Mayans, who even spoke a similar dialect, to, to to those languages that we find in Mali, languages very close, were, was a part of the people who left Mali and came here. You find that the totemic tablets, which is the tablets that give you the alphabet that was found here, the Totemic tablets. And then you have the Phoenician tablets. You also have the Metaneta. You can find the information that will tell you that the tablets found here, 25% of it is the same as the Phoenician tablets. You will also find if you study that when Cologne and Cortez sailed, they found mosques on tops of the mountains here, that there were mosques and temples there. Mosque is important, so is temple, because the people here practice various different spiritual systems, one being Islam, the Hebrew faith, or what we call Hebrew, Yeruda, Yehuda, and also Voodoo in Yoruba, or what we today mistakenly call Voodoo. But you can find mosques in Peru, and so on and so forth. Now, you turn to the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. And that becomes important because the 1828 Webster's Dictionary is the first dictionary ever printed in the colonies. What Webster sought out sought to do was to take all the different dialects that were spoken, because you have many people coming here from different parts of, of, uh, or many parts of the Germanic tribes, and he sought to codify the language into what would be called an American language. And so his definitions, or the first definitions given to words, in the colonies. Prior to that, everyone was speaking their different dialects, so it made it slightly more difficult to always understand everyone and so on and so forth.
Now, in the Webster's Dictionary, 1828, the definition of American, the first one says adjective pertaining to America. The second one says American. Now, a native of America, originally applied copper-colored racist. A native of America, originally applied to the aboriginals or copper-colored racists. Found here by the Europeans, a native of America, originally applied to the aboriginals or copper-colored races, found here by the Europeans. So in the very first dictionary, gives the true meaning of what an American is. It tells you that the Americans are the copper-colored races, i.e., those of Moorish, African, Asiatic descent. And then it goes on to say, but, but now applied to the descendants of Europeans, but now applied to the descendants of Europeans, born in America. So it was originally given to the Asiatic, Moorish, African people who were copper-colored. Get out a penny if you don't know what copper-colored is. Just simply get a penny, put it on your skin, voila, there you go. And then it tells you, but it's now applied to some foreigners that's why, it's, why it's very important that you do not give away that term to people and allow them to keep calling themselves Americans. If unless you're copper colored, you're not American. You are a foreigner, you're not American. No one can be changed. No one can change the descent nature of a people. You are what your ancestors were. And the copper-colored people, only Americas, Americans on this land. Now, you've had the pale people who now claim the birthright You have the pale people who now claim the birthright of the aboriginal people who were copper-colored. So now these pale people are claiming the birthright of the aboriginals, and they call themselves Indians and natives. But the aboriginals who were the actual people found here were copper-colored. And as presented in all information prior and depicted prior to 
1750. When Reconstruction took place, then the history was rewritten and the people who were aboriginal were then replaced with those who made treaties and sold out their foremothers and forefathers. So you had a lot of the Mongo and the European amalgamated tribes or people who sold out the aboriginals. And so once they sold out, they made treaties, and now they are the people who are still making treaties, stealing the birthright, mainly because we won't take it, okay? We won't take our birthright. We want to be black, Negro, colored, Afro, African-American, and all type of other nonsense that has no descent, uh, is not a nationality, and ties you to nothing. We want to be that, and we're presented with the facts. We run from being ourselves. We run from it. So many who are new will can find themselves finding it difficult to stop calling themselves something they're not, which is black, Negro, and colored, or Afro, African American. You are American because it's your birthright, because it's your home. You didn't come on a slave ship. What actually took place is that when the colonizers got here, they seen that there were over 100 million people between the different lands. They began to take the children from the different lands and travel and take them to other lands. As they were doing these things, they would then recreate the history for the children. Now, when Reconstruction took place, they then made up and reinvented a story and then put it backwards into history, as if all these billions of people came on these ships that never existed. The ships did not exist. And once they retold the story, then once the people who were dead could no longer refute it, then their descendants have no problem regurgitating it and continuing. You can also look up BBC and look up Google, first Americans were African. Look up the first Americans were African. And they will supply you with DNA evidence that proves what we're talking about on here tonight. It's called the first Americans were African. And you can get it from BBC, British Broadcasting Channel or something like that, whoever they are. But they also have a video. And, of course, they're going to mix in some fallacies in there also, but you can still get enough information to help you be able to deal with those who want to learn and, and hand them something. So this is our time for the evening. 
Uh, I want to really thank you for um, tuning in. Hopefully we did some good. Hopefully we, we helped everyone get a better understanding how to deal with this topic and to how to teach and break things down for others, to refute this lie, because remember, they're taking your birthright. Every time you want to claim that you're not home, then you remove yourself from your nature of descent because you don't want to claim what's yours. You are home. You didn't come on the slave ship. The slave ships actually didn't exist. There were a few who came here on ships for enslavement, but those numbers are highly inflated. Islam. Hopefully I'll see uh, those in the Sacramento, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose Territory, um, in, Sac- in Sacramento Territory this weekend at the African Market. Peace and love. We'll see you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.